Well, welcome back to the Space Biff Space Cast. As ever, I am your host and good friend, Dan Thoreau. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. This is somebody who I have appreciated two of her games recently. In a way, I wonder if she's been thrust into a little too much uh, infamy recently. Maybe she's regretting uh, some of the board game geek comments suddenly she's having to field. Uh, But these two games that she has designed and released very recently are both excellent games. I've been enjoying them quite a bit. Um, The first is Apiary, a game about space bees. That's the space bee game. Everybody knows that. And the second one is Wormspan, which if you haven't heard about it, maybe you're not plugged in on Board Game Geek and lucky you. (laughs) This is Connie Vogelman. Connie, it's so nice to meet you. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to talk about Wormspan and, and maybe Apiary 2 if we have a little bit of time. Um, and I will say right off the bat that I'm definitely not regretting it, but I have spent probably way too much time trolling the comments on BGG and thinking about all of the responses that I could make but won't. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that Elizabeth had given you the advice to just to, just not read the comments and the yeah, ratings. Yeah. Uh, that is, seems to be eluding me as of yet. Uh, I think it is excellent <laughs> advice. I think I should absolutely take it, and I'm very much trying to. But as you said, I mean, all of this is still very new to me, so it's very hard to not uh, spend a lot of time looking and seeing what people are saying and 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 everything. So maybe maybe one day I'll get there, but I'm not quite there yet. It's hard, you know. So I write my site on WordPress, which is a little annoying because it gives me these little alerts. I actually don't like to follow like numbers or anything like that. How many visitors are on my site? But if suddenly I have like 10,000 visitors, it sends me an email and I don't know how to turn that off. (laughs) And usually that means that someone on Reddit has written something about my site. And then I go there and read the comments and I know I shouldn't. Well, I mean, I think anytime you put something out into the world, it's hard to not, you know, want to see how, how that, that thing that you've put out into the world is being received um, and how folks are reacting to it. So I completely understand. So how, how is it different, do you feel, for something like Wormspan, which you've put it out into the world, but it actually hasn't arrived in the world yet, and people are still having all sorts of opinions about it? Yeah, well, I think at this point, it's been rated by over 100 people on BGG as of yet, mostly tens and ones, um, as one might expect. Um, and there's a lot of speculation. Um, you know, I think Jamie and Stonemeyer have put out an awful lot of information about Wormspan. And so, you know, you can read the full rule book. You can, he's put out a couple of different videos about sort of similarities and differences with um, Wingspan. Um, but, you know, there's obviously a lot of kind of information and speculation floating around. And I think that will be diffused once folks actually get copies of the game, which should be within the next month or so, um, and then actually get to Mm -hmm. play it. Um, But yeah, I mean, right now there's a lot of folks sort of saying, oh, it's a reskin, it's a reskin, it's a reskin. I don't care what they tell us. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to respond to that. I I don't think it's a (laughs) reskin. And we can talk about it a little bit more later, but I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I think there's going to be some folks who are going to say it's too close to Wingspan. I think there's going to be some folks who are going to say it's too far from Wingspan. Um, and kind of we tried to hit a very, very fine balance there. Um, and I think any time that you um, make a game that's based on something that is so popular and so beloved and so just um, kind of everywhere <laughs> as Wingspan, there's going to be a lot of very strong uh, strong opinions about it. And that's just kind of, I think, the nature of the game. Yeah. Well, before we get into Wingspan, maybe we should uh, start with the more important topic, which is you. So two games that you've had come out just in in very rapid succession. 
Which came first, the beehive or the dragon egg? So aviary came first, uh, the beehive. So I had um, been working on that actually starting in about 2019 uh, and ended up pitching that and signing it with Stonemeyer in 2021. Um, and then when that game was sort of wrapping up, uh, we ended up, uh, Jamie asked if I'd be interested in doing a sequel to Wingspan, you know, if something would be possible, we'd want to talk with Elizabeth, et cetera, et cetera. But he um, sort of pitched that. And then I started designing Wormspan. And in part, in large part, because we actually started working on the art for Wormspan, uh, sort of simultaneous with the design. So by the mm -hmm. time the design was done on Wormspan, the art was done as well. And so the time from when I finished working on it to the time that it was released was much, much shorter than for Apiary. So there was actually a pretty decent amount of time on my end <laughs> where I was done with both games. Yeah. Then sort of the art and the graphic design and everything uh, was on a little bit of a different cycle for the, for the two games. So then they obviously released very close together. That makes sense. So where did Apiary come from? Because when I played it, I was surprised by, to, because to me, I play it and I feel like it's riffing on something that uh, Jamie had designed years ago, uh, which was Euphoria, Build a Better Dystopia. And, um, you know, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm casting shade or anything like that, because this, this hobby is 99% riffing and iteration. And I, I think that Apiary is actually the better game of the two that it has innovated on and improved upon Euphoria. So was that a deliberate process on your part or had you just stumbled upon something similar to Euphoria on your own? You know, it was, it wasn't deliberate in the sense that I wasn't like, ah, you know, Euphoria has this really cool mechanism. Let me riff off it. Exactly. But I was certainly very familiar with it and it was a mechanism that I really liked. Um, mm -hmm. So sort of the, the core concept behind Apiary was this idea of what if you have workers and they age and die? And that was sort of the fundamental idea behind Apiary. And then it kind of clicked with bees right away. Um, you know, I'm a beekeeper. I had been getting into bees at the time. And so I kind of had the theme and this kind of core concept behind it. And then there was sort of the question of, all right, how do we implement it? And it never seemed to work very well in my mind to have bees like blocking spaces. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense for bees to be like, for it to be a worker placement game. I mean, that's what bees do. You know, you're sort of sending yeah. them out into yeah. the world. But it, from the very first iteration, it didn't make a lot of sense to me to have them blocking spaces. I mean, that's just so counter to what bees do. So I was looking through a lot of other kind of options and mechanisms. And Euphoria and then um, Jimmy Sigmar also designed the campaign Charterstone, which uses a similar bumping mechanism. And I really liked that mechanism in both games because it creates a very interactive game, but it doesn't create the, I think, negativity or the sort of uh, being locked out that comes with a lot of other worker placement games. I mean, you know, if you think of something like, it, you know, your classic, your Agricola, if somebody takes that wood spot and I desperately need wood, like, oh, well, I'll come up with plan B. Um, and I think some of the bumping mechanisms, and I would say some of the Shem Phillips games do very similar kind of interesting, interesting takes on this where you're not really blocked out as well, which are really interesting. And I think it kind of opens up a slightly broader decision space. So yeah, it was sort of a roundabout, a roundabout answer. <laughs> no, I think, I think it makes sense. So you had played a lot of Euphoria in the past. Yes. Yeah. I had played it. And then I had actually played a lot of Charterstone, um, which again, uses the same, uses the same mechanism. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, it does. It's interesting because I feel like worker placement games, I'm one of those weirdos who like my complaints with worker placement games are all like labor based, right? Where I'm going like, well, this isn't how labor behaves. Like labor has <laughs> needs and you know, like why don't they ever strike when you treat them like this? And so I like that euphoria has at least the sense that maybe your workers get annoyed with you <laughs> and yeah, then, yeah. 
And then I really like apiary in the sense that, well, your workers are not just this endlessly fungible, reusable resource. You do need to think about, you know, that a worker who has been doing something for four turns is inherently better at their job than a worker that's been doing it for one or two turns. But at the same time, that that worker who's been doing it for four turns is looking at retirement. <laughs> yeah. Actually, so some of the early versions of apiary were actually a little bit different. So one of the things I was trying to do was mimic a beehive. Um, and so, you know, bees in a beehive have very differentiated responsibilities. And they are, some of them are very um, uh, age dependent, you know, so they'll do one job for the first couple weeks of their life and one job, you know, a little bit later on and so on. Um, and so I was actually trying to have a system where you'd have you like the ones that would be better at certain actions and the fours would be better at certain other actions, but it ended up feeling very prescriptive. I mean, it was just, the game is telling you what to do. When you have a one, you go explore. When you have a two, you buy a tile. When you have a three, you know, et cetera. Um, and so I think that this version ended up capturing that a lot better and giving people some kind of interesting, you know, decisions along the way. Well, and you kind of have it a little bit, right? With that there's the carve space. Is it is it the carve action where you're building mm -hmm. the the kind of game, the capstone monuments, right? Where only level four bees can go there, but also level four bees are really good no matter where they go. Yep. And that was something that got added during uh, development with Stonemeyer, And I think it really, really makes the game, um, you know, cause before I think I just had the fours, you know, go get the carvings and they were always a little bit better, but the idea that your fours, you want them to go everywhere because regardless of where you send them, it's going to be a better action um, was something that was added, added during development. And I think it's one of the best, the best parts of the game. So how long have you been an apiarist? <laughs> so I've, I've been keeping bees for about three, three to four years at this point. So I was basically doing a lot of the initial beekeeping research at the same time that I started working on apiary. So back in 2019, uh, my grandpa actually kept bees. And so I sort of grew up with some knowledge of bees and beekeeping. Um, and then finally, after we, um, we bought a house, you know, we had a backyard. And so I keep uh, bees in the middle of my uh, urban DC backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how that is. My sister, uh, one of my three sisters is actually an apiarist. Mm -hmm. And so in our neighborhood, uh, a few of our neighbors have requested beehives. So you can see her, she's also an artist. So you can see her painted beehives um, in different people's backyards. And so I, awesome. I know it. I know a little bit about it, but obviously not as much as you would. Is it a career or is it more of a hobbyist thing? It's, a, it's just a hobby. Um, I may, my day job is I'm a lawyer, so it's not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Yeah. Uh, m many people are like, wait, you have a real job? I thought you were yeah. just a game yep. critic. And I'm like, no, that doesn't pay money. Are you <laughs> crazy? Well, and unfortunately, I think most of these, um, most of these creative enterprises, it's, um, Hard to, hard to make a living off of them. So I think the vast majority of folks that I know have a, have a day job in addition to whatever, whatever else they're doing. So. Yeah. Were there any other ways that uh, your work with bees had informed the setting? I mean, so the, the number one question I hear when I first put this on the table is why bees? But I feel like yeah. the more interesting question is why outer space? <laughs> yeah, well... So the outer space one's actually fairly easy to answer. And that's a, that was a, a, a Jamie idea. Um, so I had, um, Jamie and I had been talking a little bit about the game. And I think he was a little bit interested, but a little bit cautious. I think I had a long way to go on it when I first, you know, started reaching out to Stonemaier. Um, and he sort of said, look, I think this game's potentially interesting, but I'm a little bit worried. This game called Honeybuzz just came out. This is a midweight worker placement bee-themed game. And I'm a little bit concerned that this is going to be sharing a very similar space. 
And, and also I'll mention too, that there were a few problems with the, the apiary design. I mean, bees are smart, but they're not quite as smart as they were in the game. So like, why are they building all of these technologies? Why are they recruiting, uh, you know, helpers from other beehives? Like, what are they doing? You yeah. know, this, isn't, this isn't very true to, to bees. Um, and so he asked if I'd be willing to rework it to be in, in outer space. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm a big sci-fi fan. And it actually helped solve some of the underlying issues of the game. It really helped us with the exploration system, getting that locked down. It helped. Um, actually, we added a second refined resource at that point. That's where the wax came from, um, which, you know, real bees oh, do yeah. certainly use wax. But it didn't make quite as much sense in the regular game, so that got added. Um, and then I think it really just kind of helped explain <laughs> some of the rest of the game. So I think it was a very good change, but that's where space came from. Um, you know, as far as the bees are concerned, I mean, the, the real big thing is obviously kind of the aging, the dying, the life cycle. You know, because I think of, you know, you kind of taking on the role of a queen bee in sending your workers out into the world. Um, you know, but I will say kind of the building up the hive and the hex, uh, the hex grids and all of that. And I think there's a lot of kind of subtle bee themed stuff that's kind of worked into the game. So all of the planets are named on uh, after families and orders of plants. Uh, all of the faction tiles, uh, faction titles are subspecies of honeybees. And then most of the tile names are somewhat related to things that bees actually do. Um, and then, of course, you have the waggle dances as well. So you are uh, learning new conversions throughout the game. You can basically set them up and then other people can use those conversions. And they're called dances in the games. And those are kind of modeled after bees, you know, waggle dances. Was there anything about bees that you wanted to put into the game but just didn't fit? I have noticed that people's their critique of the game is that they don't get a lot of beeness out of it. But when I played it, I was like, oh, I think they're bees. Yeah, I mean, and that's obviously just going to be a little bit subjective and it's going to hit everyone a little bit differently. Um, as I said, I think the thing that I really wish I could have um, figured out a, maybe a better system for, and I think it would have been a very much more complicated game, was this idea of really like one worker going through different phases of its life and taking on different jobs as it did so. Um, you know, that would almost be some kind of a training system or a leveling up system that you'd have to undergo with your workers. And I think that would have been a much heavier game. But that's something that I would like to potentially explore in the future. I think there'd be a lot of sort of interesting things there. And I think um, something like Darwin's Journey does that to an extent where you're sort of leveling up your workers um, over the course of the game and giving them different specialties. And so I think you could kind of incorporate uh, something like that into a game like Apiary. And I think it would really kind of hammer home that, that bee theme. Who's the queen when I play this game? Am I the queen? <laughs> So, and I will say that's a little bit, so yes. So my concept behind it is that you are essentially the queen. You're essentially managing the hive. Um, but then you obviously have this queenship that's running around. And so the idea is that you are all different colonies in this giant fleet. And there's sort of one head queen. That's where the queenship comes in. And then you guys are all mm. like, all of the players are kind of little queens, you know, managing your own kind of colony within that larger hive. Okay. So there's no chance that I can send my drones to to smother the bigger queen and take over. I mean, you could, that might be a slightly different game. Um, you know, and everyone, <laughs> it's sort of funny. Everyone thinks bees are, are these, you know, really like gentle. Well, I, I would say gentle creatures for the most part. I mean, they obviously can sting, um, but there are a lot of things about bees and bee biology that's gets pretty nasty. I mean, you know, if you have to, you ever have an old and sick queen in your hive, things get a little bit, well, a little bit nasty. The hive must survive, you know? Um, yeah. So you, you could have definitely gone down a different route like that with the game, but I never wanted it to be particularly aggressive. I never really wanted that that element of bee biology to be in the game. 
One of the things that kind of struck me is, you know, the outer space setting, I feel like had sort of solved it for me, you know, that concern. Cause I know when some people were like, well, these don't feel enough like bees, you know, which as you pointed out is a very subjective complaint. And I'm thinking, well, to me, some of the things that are defining characteristics of bees are kind of their squabbles within the hive and smothering the queen, you know, like kind of the, the mean parts of bees. But I feel like what your game did by putting it in outer space, it's sort of like the Star Trek version. Absolutely. Um, well, and I think too, I mean, originally in the first game, they they all died, right? I mean, there weren't none of this hibernation stuff. I mean, the bees aged yeah. and they died and that was what they did. And so a lot of playtesters had a little bit of a problem with that. They were like, I don't want to kill my workers. And I'm like, no, you're not killing them. It's just, they, they just die. It's just, it's just what happens. And so I do think that by having them hibernate, it does soften it a little bit because I think it's a little bit easier to send your bee off. Like, thank you for your service. Now you've earned a good night's sleep is a little bit kinder than yeah. I've just yeah. worked you to death and now you're, now you're done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about it in terms of like, like in Star Trek, we propose that the future, like humans have kind of gotten over greed and maybe the Star Trek version of bees is maybe their inter, you know, clayed dynamics have kind of calmed down a little or something. Right. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, you have, I mean, you know, so especially if you're an urban beekeeper, you put, um, for instance, robbing screens on your, on your hive, especially in, in the fall, once um, sort of the pollen and the nectar flow lessens specifically because other bees, if they can't forage, will just rob other hives and it will basically kill the hive. Mm -hmm. I mean, they will basically fight to the death and then steal all the honey and, you know, take it back to their own hive. I mean, it can be a very, very brutal place. And, you know, I think there are an awful lot of, there are certainly some designers, I mean, Amabel Holland comes to mind, who are doing some really interesting kind of case studies on sort of exploring different emotions in games. Um, yeah. But I think for me, I didn't want something that was going to be quite that realistic and quite that um, kind of evocative of some very negative emotions. So I'm good friends with Amabel. I'm actually going to be chatting with her on Sunday about awesome. a couple of her very difficult, heavy games that are very personal. And it's hard to make sure not to draw that comparison because she's like the only one who's doing games that are so brutally uncompromising about like the emotions that you should feel as a player. Um, so it can be a little bit of an unfair comparison for the rest of us, right? Who aren't putting <laughs> our whole selves into our games. But I'll be I'll be really curious to tune in to tune in and listen listen to that conversation because I do think she's doing some really really fascinating things and really kind of pushing the boundaries of what a game is. Yeah, absolutely, she is. So now that Apiary is out, how how has the response felt? Has it been positive, um, or has it gotten lost in the sweep of Wormspan? No, it's definitely felt positive. Um, absolutely, and and this is where. Um, you know, you don't know what's going to happen when you put a game out into the world. Um, and especially any, any Stonemaier release is going to be relatively high profile and you just don't know. And so I have been really happy with how it's been received. You know, people seem to be genuinely enjoying it and that's why you make a game, right? Well, why I make a game, let me put it that way, (laughs) Uh, is, is, is generally to, to, to bring people joy. And so that's been really exciting. Um, but I will say the last few weeks in particular, it's been, a lot of mental energy and worry spent on Wormspan. Especially, so when did Apiary come out? Uh, I believe the pre-orders went live in October, and then the retail release was in November. So it really hasn't been in the world all that long. That seems like a really quick turnaround for uh, Jamie. Yep, yep. 
Well, as I said, I think some of it's just they have kind of different bottlenecks in the process. And so, you know, because the art for Apiary really wasn't started until after the game was done, it basically took um, a while to do that. And then at the same time, we were working on Wormspan and then the art was being done essentially at the same time. And so I think at that point, it basically just had to, both games sort of went through, I think, the graphic design and proofreading process sort of sequentially. And then so that's sort of the the space between the games. Although I, I honestly don't really know a lot of the details. That's obviously more in, more on Jamie's side. But yeah, it was, it was obviously a very, very quick turnaround. Um, some of it I'll mention too is that the Aberry freight shipment got delayed by I think a month or so. Um, and so it was actually supposed to come out a little bit earlier. So speaking of Wormspan, so you mentioned that Jamie, because of Apiary, that he asked if you would be interested in designing, uh, what was like a riff on Wingspan? Like how, what was the pitch? Was it going to be closer, farther? What was the idea? Yeah, the idea was a, a spinoff of Wingspan that would feel familiar to folks who have played Wingspan, but that was different enough and unique enough to stand on its own um, so that it was you know, not something where the cards are interchangeable or anything like that. And the goal from the beginning was for it to be dragons and for it to be at least a half step, you know, a, a little bit heavier than than Wingspan. So sort of for either the folks uh, who really enjoy Wingspan and are now using that as kind of a launching point to get into the hobby, you know, this is good, uh, hopefully a, a logical next step. And then also for some of the folks for whom Wingspan didn't appeal either because of the bird theme or because folks wanted just a little bit of extra crunch. Um, that was sort of the goal for Wormspan. Um, and the other piece to mention too is the first version of it was actually going to be a bag builder. Um, that was sort of the initial pitch was oh. a bag building version of, of Wingspan. And we ended up losing losing that fairly fairly early on in the process. It turns out that that um, notched up the complexity several notches because you're, you're basically have joint engine building at that point because you're engine building your bag and you're engine building your tableau. And it got to the point where it just was not particularly friendly to people who weren't hardcore gamers. And so we ended up yeah. cutting that um, because it just felt so punishing, man. If you fell behind in the bag building, and I don't know how to, I personally don't know how to build a bag builder or a deck builder that isn't a little bit uh, snowball-y. Um, yeah. And so that combined with the tableau building made for some really fun games and it also made for some pretty bad experiences. So we ended up cutting that pretty early on. What part of the game was bag buildy? So it was the action selection system. So basically you had, oh. the idea was that the bag was sort of your, your torch and you were exploring your cave like through using this torch. And a lot of the cave spaces and then a lot of the dragons required you to essentially pay them fire to walk by. Um, and it was different amounts. And so some of the spaces would be one fire, some would be two, some would be three. Um, and then the idea is you were kept going until your torch basically went out. And there were a couple of other colors. We had some colors in there for coins that would allow you to buy things for the market. And I think at some point we had some like, you know, double or triple cubes or half cubes or stuff like that. We had some kind of different steps. Um, and then at one point, I think we also had the resources in the bag and that was a nightmare. <laughs> that was just too many colors of stuff that you were drawing out of your bag, trying to make some, some kind of sense of it. But I will say, I did really like the concept of this idea that you have this cave and when the cave is empty, you need to spend a lot of fire to move through. It's just this big, vast, dark tunnel. And then as you put the dragons in there, they basically covered up some of the spaces and then it decreased the cost to walk by them. And I really, really liked that concept and it didn't quite work for this game. Um, but again, maybe it's something to explore in the future. So it seems to have found its way into the game a little bit. For those who don't know, do you want to kind of describe what's going on with the three yeah. cave tiers? And... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for folks who haven't... Um, you know, aren't really familiar with Wormspan. It's very, very similar to, to Wingspan in some senses, in the sense that you are uh, you have a, a cave mat that's very similar to the player mats in Wingspan, and you are building out essentially three rows of dragons. 
So the first thing you have to do in Wormspan is actually excavate the caves uh, by playing a cave card into your cave that gives you a space to hold a dragon. Then all of the cave cards have when played benefits to kind of give you give you things when you place them. And then that opens up a space to um, play a dragon. Like Wingspan, the tunnels are themed. So the top tunnel has to do with food uh, and food cards uh, or getting different food resources. The middle one has to do with dragon cards. So you're picking up, that's how you get uh, new dragons. And then the third tunnel has to do with um, cave cave exploration. So getting those cave cards. And then, you know, unlike Wingspan, there are eggs, but they are uh, interspersed in all three tunnels. And then you also have a dragon guild as well. So you're getting um, the, the three tunnels give you advancements on that dragon guild, uh, which we can talk about a little bit more later. But that's sort of the, the kind of core concept of what you're doing in Wormspan. One thing that I love that the game does is the explore action. I've written in the past that there are so many tableau builders, right? This is, it's a common genre, but one thing that I love is when a tableau builder lets me explore the tableau I've built. Um, And kind of the big example I always give is there's this wonderful game called Santa Monica, where you're, you're building actually a beachfront of, you know, Santa Monica, California, but you're also moving little pieces around to visit like, oh, now we're going to go build sandcastles or we're going to go to the bike, you know, rental shop. And I love the fact that not only you're building a tableau that, you know, has all these points for adjacencies, but you also get to explore it. And with Wormspan, you have done something like that, where you know, once you excavate these caves and once you fill them with dragons, the the action, I don't remember what it's called, but where you get to take your little pawn and walk it from left to right, deeper into the cavern, uh, getting bonuses from the dragons that you pass, but also the different sections of the cave that you have, you know, cre- carved into to create access for. I absolutely adore that because now the game has some sort of... Uh, a thematic tie, you know, it's very tangible to take that pawn and move it through. I was going to say, I think that's one of my favorite, my one of my favorite parts of the game. Like, I think there's, you know, people sort of ask like, well, what, what, what's unique about it or what's, why dragons, you know, how, how does it kind of connect with the dragon theme? And I think there's something that's very, very evocative about kind of carving out this tunnel and summoning a dragon. And then you can basically go visit the dragon along the way. Um, there's these little hatchling, the little hatchling dragons as well that you're sort of feeding them along the way. So every time you go by, you you know drop something on them or you tuck a card under them, and then ultimately they kind of grow up and give you a, a big benefit. But I think there's something that's sort of like very evocative about that, like you're tending to your little dragon, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I will say, my nine-year-old, who is dragon obsessed, all she does is she draws dragons. I'm looking around because normally I have like a hundred dragon. Unfortunately, I cleaned up all her dragon photos, but she just sits and draws dragons and reads all these dragon gra- graphic novels. Her favorite thing is dragons with her friends at recess. They play dragon family. Um, and so when this game showed up, she was just ecstatic. Um, and so she asked if we could play it. And actually our very first play was with a nine-year-old mm-hmm. and she, and, you know, she got it okay. Um, mm-hmm. On the box, it says 14 plus, but I think that might be a concession to European. That, yes. My understanding with with all of the 14 and up is it's a European standards issue to basically not make them uh, make the components such that I think you can't eat them or something like that. I'm not sure 100% what it is, but but I think that's that more has to do with manufacturing standards than with the actual age. Oh, really? I, I, had, I had heard from someone that, in Europe, unless you get it professionally certified, you legally need to say 14 and up um, unless you get it professionally certified. But no one in the board game industry wants to pay someone to certify it. But I don't know if that's true. Understood. No, that, that sounds very that sounds 
correct. I'm just sort of speaking without knowing anything, but I do know it's a certification <laughs> thing and not an actual age limit. Yeah. Well, me too. We can both speak about <laughs> things we have no idea about, I guess. Um, so, so where, when did this idea of journeying into the dragon caverns come about? Basically from the very first version, that was sort of one of the core concepts. And so a really big part of the game was figuring out how that cave exploration and how that journeying was going to work. Um, and I would say too, that a lot of the versions were actually much farther away from Wingspan. So a lot of the versions, the early versions, you were actually just building out your player mat. You basically just had a blank space in front of you. And then you were kind of building out the different sections. And then in a lot of the early versions too, you could go in a lot of different directions. So you weren't necessarily going in straight lines. You know, you could go up mm -hmm. and down and back and forth and you could build out extra long caves and short caves. And in one version you could build in kind of both left and right. So you had more than three caves that you were building out. Um, and this was sort of where I think Elizabeth and her development work were really key because I think I was kind of off in La La Land and she's like, Connie, this game is interesting, but it's not really Wingspan. <laughs> and so um, that was actually, so So then we kind of tried to rein it and rein it a, a, a little bit and make it, make sure that it was kind of true to the Wingspan kind of name and brand and the folks who, who love Wingspan. Yeah. So in our, in our industry, there's a lot of uh, great, there, there's, there's not necessarily a lot of sunlight between the role of designer and developer. You know, sometimes it can be confused. Sometimes, you know, a developer may as well be a designer. It, it's all over the place. I've played a lot of Wormspan. I'm one of the only people who has. I'm allowed to yes. have an opinion on it. <laughs> I, I'm just not allowed to have said anything about it yet. But why, why didn't Elizabeth just design it? Because, you know, I love the version you created. So I don't mean this in a negative way at all. No, I don't, I don't take it negatively. I don't know if Elizabeth had interest in it, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that she mm. is, um, and I don't want to put words in her mouth by any means, but I mean, you know, she's doing a lot of wingspan expansion. So this is still something that she's working on a lot. And I think she also had some other um, projects that she really wanted to pursue. I also think that, you know, Jamie was interested in, in dragons and in part because they got a lot of requests. I mean, a lot of people sort of say, oh, I'd love something like wingspan, but with dragons. And it was a request that he got a lot. And I think Elizabeth doesn't maybe particularly like dragons. So I think that was, you know, she's, I think, hmm. much more grounded in reality and in nature. So I think this particular iteration just wasn't something that had a huge amount of, of appeal for her. Um, and I think, too, that she generally likes to make games a little bit, a little bit lighter. And so I think a, a heavier version as well wasn't probably the most appealing thing to her either. That makes sense. One of the things that I find a little bit ironic about Wormspan is that in Wingspan, I, 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 you know, I was one of the first people to review Wingspan. I gave it a positive review. I still feel very fondly toward it, mm -hmm. but I never, I'm never sure what I'm doing in Wingspan. You know, <laughs> there, there's a little bit of abstraction there because I'm always like, well, are we bird watching? Like, what, what do the three rows mean? Are we like, are we, are we putting the, are they in exhibits? Are we eating the birds? I just don't know. I. Hopefully we're not eating them. I think that would that would make a much darker turn to the game than I think. Yeah, I, I don't think we are. But I, I just never know what we're doing. Whereas in this fictional setting that you've created, it feels very concrete. You know, it feels very like how to train your dragon. Yeah. Where yeah. I know Thank I know what I'm doing in the setting. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, we did really want to keep that kind of like, you know, this sounds weird because it's about dragons, but we really did want to keep that kind of realism and that kind of grounding. I mean, I think the idea and sort of the thought experiment was what if dragons actually existed, you know, not if they're these mythical magical creatures, like what if they actually existed in this real world and kind of came about like our current birds or our current mammals or something like that. And so we kind of tried to keep that, keep that foundation. 
Well, I have to compliment you because my my nine year old, well, I guess ten year old, she just turned ten this week. But um, happy happy birthday to her. Yeah, thank you. She we had a lovely party with her little friends. It's the first year that she has had a party with her friends instead of just with family. So mm-hmm. she's growing mm-hmm. up, and I love her so much. But she uh, so she sat down and we played it, and it was one of the most memorable experiences at the gaming table I've ever had. That was uh, wonderful. Because every single move, she would be like, Daddy, look at this. And Daddy, look look at what this dragon is. Do you know what this dragon is? And she saw the, uh, it, with, with the game, there is included a dragon fact book mm-hmm. that lists every single card in the game and has a, just a little sentence description. And she was going, Daddy, can I... Can I have that? And I'm going, no, not until the game is over. Cause I knew <laughs> she was going to spend the entire, you know, she wasn't going to take turns. And the instant the game was over, the instant we announced the score, she said, daddy, can I have the dragon book? Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Well, so you did capture the appeal for a nine-year-old who <laughs> loved the dragons. Well, that's, I mean, that's wonderful. And I mean, as I said, we're trying to kind of create a world. I think uh, Clementine Camperdeau, the artist, did an absolutely phenomenal job rendering all of these dragons. I don't know where she pulled all of them from because there's so many and they're all different. Um, But, you know, we were really trying to kind of, you know, appeal to people who love dragons and have that kind of whimsy and imagination and all of that. So I'm really, really glad to hear that that it was a, a hit with your daughter. So how much research did you have to do into dragon types? You know, we were reading the rule book and, and there's like, uh, you know, obviously there, w- there was a there was a rating one on Board Game Geek that made the critique that uh, it's a it's about dragons, but there's not even a dragon on the cover. And of course, you look up a wyvern and a wyvern is a type of dragon. So, yes, kind of dorky. Yeah. But, you know, you, you've got I don't even know how to pronounce some of these dragons like amphitaires. You know, yep. you've got. Yep like European heraldic dragons, you've got lung dragons, you kind of have the Asian dragons, you have all sorts of dragons. Did yep. you have to do any of that research or is that more on the art, art side? So it was both. Clementine and I actually worked pretty closely together. So she and I, um, you know, with the help of Jamie, came up with kind of a classification system fairly early in the process. And we kind of went through different types of dragons from different lore. And, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning too that, um, you know, there's no IPs right. in the game, so there's not like smog or anything like that in this game. Yeah. So you're not going to see anything like that. But we did, you know, a bunch of research into kind of dragon lore. I got some, you know, dragon books and dragon encyclopedias and stuff like that and kind of trying to figure (laughs) out like, okay, what is going to be our classification system? How many types of dragons are we going to try to include in the game? Which do we want to make sure that we include? And then kind of how many of each type? Um, And so that really informed the art um, was basically what kind of dragons they are. And so you'll see a lot of the the names are like X dragon or X worm or X wyvern or something like that. And then the sort of first words of the names have to do with kind of their abilities. So sort of what they do. So uh, for instance, a lot of the dragons that give you bumps on the dragon guild all have kind of ancient names. So that might be primeval or, uh, you know, ancient or primordial or something like that. And so that was kind of our, our classification system. And so Clementine and I um, both put that together. You know, Jamie um, and Elizabeth obviously signed off on it. And then that was kind of the framework that Clementine used to then start drawing and iterating on all of these dragons. And even just playing it, even a bit casually, you know, I'm not sitting there and trying to, which dragon does type does this. It's very natural to notice a few simple classifications, um, which I think lends itself to a sense of place in a way that Wingspan didn't. Uh, And again, I'm not trying to 
dash on wingspan. I just I like wormspan quite a lot. So um, so that really stands out. When oh, I was just gonna say this is one of the advantages of working with fiction too, um, because you know one of the other things that we did is we had the kind of color classifications on the tunnels and then tried to match the dragons to the tunnels, um, which then also is, of course correlated to their abilities. So. The red tunnel, for instance, has a lot of reds and browns and pinks and oranges, kind of your warm color dragons. And your purple tunnel has all of your purples and blues and kind of your cool colors. Um, and that's obviously something that you can do with a fictional setup a lot more easily than you can if you're working with real real life creatures. One of the things you mentioned is this guild system, which my understanding, just having played it a little bit, is that you you mentioned that you have the three tunnels and they each sort of provide a different role. The top tunnel gives you food. The middle one tends to give you dragon cards. The bottom one tends to give you cave cards. But that you you don't want that to be too binding, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to... Re- like, I've gotten games where I really haven't put many dragons into one of the tunnels. And it's thanks to things like the cave cards and the dragon guild that give me resources outside of that process. Do you want to describe what the guild system is and how that can disrupt the yeah. play? Yeah, absolutely. So the Dragon Guild is one of my favorite parts. So I'm a big fan of tracks. Um, I like a lot of these roll and write games where you're, you know, bumping tracks. Like I love Hadrian's Wall. Like I absolutely love that game just because you're all, all you're doing is you're going up tracks with TV bonuses. Anyway, so the Dragon Guild is a circular track and the edges, the sort of outside circle is the same every single game. So you get a bump and then that might give you an egg. You get another bump and it might give you a crystal. You get another bump that gives you a card and so on. But the interesting thing is there's a central central tile in the middle that is different each game. There's four of them that come in the game, and then they're also scaled with player count sort of front and back. And those give you kind of big bonuses. So every time you get to the bottom or the top of the circle, you kind of go around in circles, you get some kind of a big bonus. And it will be like a free play of a dragon, a free excavation, something like that. And all of the Dragon Guild tiles are kind of themed around a particular thing. So the Rainforest Guild, for instance, is very resource intensive, so you get a lot of extra resources and stuff. And what I really like about the Dragon Guild is, first of all, you can advance on the Dragon Guild on all three tracks. And, you know, you can get extra guild advancements from uh, cave cards and from sort of when played dragons and some of your, um, if activated, your dragons that you walk over and so on. But what I really like is it it separates some of those restrictions um, in each tunnel, you know, as you mentioned. And so a lot of times, like, if you play your cards right, (laughs) literally and figuratively, you can get, sometimes get a lot of the food resources you need, for instance, from the guild, which means that maybe that game building out the red tunnel is a little bit less important. And I think you could say the same with all the different tunnels. And I think for me, that's a really important part of player agency. You know, you don't want the game to be too rote. You don't want it to be every single game, I'm going to put exactly two dragons in each of these tunnels. That's not really a very interesting decision. And I think the guild gives you some interesting ways to kind of circumvent some of those constraints. I love that it opens it up to certain types of combos that you can build. combos. (laughs) Yeah. Who doesn't love a good combo? Right. (laughs) I've had some incredible combos. And one thing that I love that it does is it it gives you the freedom to maybe finish a row instead of having to, you know, build each one equally. Um, I had a great session where all I did was I just immediately four dragons into that first row and it was expensive and difficult. But once I got it, I was running the exploration of that. Uh, row like three times around just for insane benefits but even then you've put in a pretty smart system with exploration that kind of pulls it back uh do you want to describe that for us yeah and and that's actually one of my favorite parts of the game and it's one of my favorite actually changes from wingspan and it's very sort of subtle it's not something that you're really going to notice when you read the rule book and then when you start playing you realize it that 
the costs to enter each tunnel in the same round increase. Uh, so the first time that you uh, you enter this a red tunnel in a round, it costs a coin, which are essentially your similar to your action cubes in Wingspan. Right. The second time it costs a coin and an egg. The third time it costs a coin and two eggs. And you can't actually enter a tunnel more than three times in a round. And so I think it creates these kind of interesting sequences of like, you may only go enter a tunnel once in a round. And so figuring out when to do that in the round can be really important. And I think it also just gives you kind of an interesting decision because eggs are a little bit, can be hard to come by. It depends on what build you know you have and, and what you've built out. Um, and so whether or not to spend those eggs can be a really interesting decision. And I think also too, that, you know, one of the, the, criticisms of the base game of wingspan and i think it's different in the expansions but you know it's the idea that you build out your egg row and then you just lay eggs a bunch and this kind of changes that incentive a little bit you know you can only activate each row three times so even if you build out a super powerful row that kind of caps that um and then also makes it a little bit less obvious too just because those costs do increase and two there's a sense that if you're playing it just totally as a mathematical question that those are sacrificed victory points. They are. Which so so now you're thinking not only in terms of of the fiction or the resources, you're remembering, well, I'm spending one point to go in there a second time or two points to go in a second time. And now every everything you're doing is this big mathematical question, which, you know, you may you may like more or like less. I, I tend to be a little love, more thematic player. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned that you worked uh, very closely with the artist. So that's Clementine. How do you pronounce her last name? Compardu? I think so. I'm not 100%. She's French, I think. Um, but I think she's living in Australia now. So I my French pronunciation is awful. So I, I really don't know how it's pronounced. Well, we'll 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 go with mine. So uh, if it's wrong, Perfect. I'm the only one to catch heat. Um, how closely did you work with Elizabeth? She is listed as a developer. Um so it yep. sounds like she shot down some of your early brilliant ideas. <laughs> oh, gosh. I hope I didn't present it that way. Um, no, so Elizabeth, <laughs> um, Elizabeth was wonderful. Um, she was absolutely – so she and Jamie both took on a development role for the game. Um, and, you know, Elizabeth's actually local to me. Um, and so we live in the same area and could actually play test the game a lot together. And she was really, really critical in kind of helping, especially with that feel element, that – is this too close to wingspan? Is it too far from wingspan? And most of the time it was too far from wingspan and sort of yeah. trying to figure out how to capture some of that same magic, you know, because obviously wingspan has just, again, I mean, wormspan is standing on the shoulders of giants here, um, but sort of trying to capture some of those elements that make wingspan so special and to make sure to keep that while giving the game its own uh, unique identity. And so Elizabeth was, was really, really helpful both in the play testing. And also, I mean, I would just sort of shoot her an email if I got stuck and I'm like, Hey, I'm having a really hard time working out, you know, X, usually it's math. Usually it's basically like something's not working out right. There's too many resources, too few resources, too much variance, too less, too little variance, you know, something like that. You know, have you dealt with this in, in Wingspan? And she often had some really, really good kind of troubleshooting, um, you know, suggestions that then I would kind of go and run with and then come back, you know, come back a couple of weeks or a month later. So you mentioned uh, some changes in like the math and the resources, I will say that I have uh, some members of my group who are uh, wingspan hostile. Okay. Okay. And um, they are very grateful that um, the birdhouse is gone. Yeah. Um, understood. So happy to talk about that a little bit. So I never wanted to have, we, we never really were going to have that kind of dice style in, in Wormspan. You know, they are, the game is just a little bit 
a little bit more complicated. You have the, the digging out the cave factor. You also have the dragon guild factor. And so you're trying to keep a couple of extra things in your head. So you might play a cave card, which gives you a dragon guild bump, which gives you a resource, which then allows you to do something else. And so we didn't want, I didn't want that variability in food there. We tried a couple of different sort of market-based systems with differing costs, you know, depending on what resource you got. And we tried a few different systems where not every food was necessarily available at all times. And people just found it to be frustrating. You know, there's nothing more frustrating yeah. in a game. And I think it actually works really well um, in Wingspan. Um, I really think it, it works really well in that game. And for whatever reason, it just didn't work quite as well in Wormspan. So we really took out that mm -hmm. variability because you're already dealing with the card variants, um, both for the dragon cards and the cave cards. Um, and we just didn't want to add sort of a third source of variability. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I I don't I'm not hostile toward the birdhouse, but I think that you know not only in terms of variability, but the way I conceptualize wingspan and now wormspan is that they're games about overcoming bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that one of the very tight bottlenecks in wingspan is that birdhouse. It that is. Yep. It, if nobody wants the resources that are in that birdhouse, it tends to sit, and no one gets through the bottleneck. Um, and by removing that bottleneck in Wormspan, you already have like three ma three or four major bottlenecks. You know, what am I pulling out of this deck? What am I pulling out of the cave deck? Do I have enough resources? Do I have enough coins? Y you have enough bottlenecks to overcome that maybe the resource variability is just a little, it's a bridge too far maybe. Yep. And that was absolutely what we felt when we were playtesting it. And so that actually any kind of variability with the food came out pretty early on. And I think, again, it's, do you have the actions? Do you have the eggs to spend to actually go into the tunnels? Do you have the cave cards that you need? How do those synergize with the bird cards that you need? How do you go get those things? It just seemed like enough, <laughs> to be honest. So that was, that was why it ended up kind of going away. So Connie, may I ask you a question that my nine-year-old asked? Sure, by all means. So she noted that the dragons had different personalities. Mm -hmm. Yep. So on the dragons, you've got these little bands that say they're playful or aggressive. Um, and my nine-year-old, who is very into dragons, at one point we were about... So I, is the game four rounds? Yep. Mm -hmm. Four rounds. Yep. Okay. So, so, so we had reached the last round. And she had a very handsome stable of dragons. And she was, you know, try making sure she could pronounce all their names. And she was really looking at them. She was very excited. And she turned to me and she said, Daddy, can I attack you with my dragons? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know that. Sorry, I, 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 yeah, um, I can respond to that. Or I didn't know if there was a specific. I, I think you know the question. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why are these are the nicest dragons in the universe? Yes. Probably because it's riffing on Wingspan, which is, and I, I don't mean this negatively at all, but it's a, what we might call a multiplayer solitaire game, right? Where everyone is invested in their own engine. There's not a lot of intermeshing between players. There is a little. Um, so why, uh, just, just my nine-year-old, why can't she attack me, Connie? Yeah, I mean, so it was definitely something that we talked about. And I think that I don't think it was something that any of us were wild about. I also think that this is probably something that if I had to guess, I would guess Elizabeth would probably just say no full stop on. <laughs> but I think that, you know, so there's sort of two things for me. And one is loss aversion. Loss aversion is pretty high in games. I think in yeah. general, it feels a lot worse to lose something than it does to build something. And so I do think that if you're going to have a game with attacks, 
uh, and with sort of losing things, you do have to be very, very careful about it. And I think a lot of times it has to be very central. And I don't think there was ever any interest in having that be kind of a central element. I mean, the idea, as you said, is kind of building out your own tableau, building out your own sanctuary, yeah. kind of that sense of progression, where I think attacks would be kind of lost. I'll also say, too, that for me, there was another part of it that I kind of like pushing back on this idea of dragons as these aggressive and fearsome beasts. And they certainly are in some you know, mythologies, but in a lot of them, they're actually not. And so I kind of really was excited to lean into this idea of, yes, some of these dragons are still, you know, there is an aggressive tag. Some of them are aggressive and those dragons tend to kind of tuck cards, which, you know, the idea is that they're eating other dragons. Um, but I kind of like to push back on that and say like, well, what if they weren't quite that aggressive? You know, what if they have some of these other kind of personality traits and other characteristics? So that was sort of the other piece of it. So maybe maybe your background as an apiarist has informed even uh, Wormspan in that many people are afraid of bees, even though mm-hmm. they tend to be gentle. It's just that they're territorial. They just don't want to be bugged. Right. Well, and then, yeah, I mean, it's usually with bees. Um, if you're going into the hive, that's when they tend to get a little bit aggressive. More often than not, if you're away from their hive, they're just going to try to get away. They're not going to. I mean, it doesn't do them any good to sting you if they're not if there's no purpose in it. Um, But I will say that this is where, so I actually have an undergrad degree in behavioral biology, and then I have a master's degree in environmental science. So that's not what I'm doing for my career right now, but I do have some amount of training. (laughs) And so in, in, you know, in biology and in environmental science and stuff. And I think that is very much coming out in this game um, is some of this kind of behavioral biology, like, Oh, what if dragons did this? You know, uh, I saw, I got a question on, on BGG. I sort of did an AMA, AMA thread and people were asking questions about like, why do dragons drink milk? Like, are they reptiles? And it's like, well, biology is crazy. I mean, you have echidnas and platypuses, platypi that lay eggs. Um, You have a bunch of reptiles, you know, have live birth and stuff like that. And so I think, Milk was sort of an interesting way of saying, yeah, but the reason mammals have milk is because they're uh, warm-blooded, or that's part of the reason, and they have these kind of extra resource needs. If dragons are warm-blooded, which they often are in the lore, maybe they have sort of these similar constraints and kind of riffing off that a little bit. Well, we drink cow's milk. Which is weird. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, that's one of my most consumed foods is... Uh, is cow's milk. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. that's a little odd, isn't it? Um, I mean, if you stop and think about it, it's very strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that old Calvin and Hobbes comic, who is the first person who was like, I'm going to drink whatever comes out when I yank on these things. Right. Right. It's, and you know, but we don't even really think about it. Right. Because it's just part of our daily life. I mean, you grow up drinking milk and you get told that, you know, milk, drinking milks makes strong bones and all of that. So. Right. Yeah. You know. Speaking of behavioral biology, what is the behavioral biology between rating a game a 10 or a 1 before you've played it? <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. So I will say that watching that has been interesting. I feel like I vacillate back and forth between being like a little bit entertained by it and then a little bit frustrated by it. Because I think most of the people who spend a lot of time on BGG are well aware that this happens and they're not going to be take it too seriously. But there is this yeah. kind of vague concern in the back of my mind is like a lot of Wingspan folks, you know, aren't on BGG. I mean, if you look at BGG, I think there's something like 85 or 90,000 ratings of Wingspan compared to almost 2 million copies of the game sold. So it's a very small yeah. fraction of people. Um, so I always worry that there's going to be some folks who are familiar with Wormspan or Wingspan who come to BGG because of Wormspan, but aren't really very familiar with it and get sort of turned off because of it. But one thing that I always want to push back on a little bit is I still think that there's a big difference between rating a game a 10 and rating a game a 1 in the sense that I think it's a very logical progression to say, I'm excited about this game. I'm going to rate it a 10. And maybe it's a little bit silly and you haven't played it yet. 
it yeah. bothers me a little bit from kind of a behavioral standpoint of, you know, what is kind of the mindset of saying this game's not for me. I hate that it exists. I hate that it exists so much that I want to try to make that game less successful. Therefore, I'm going to rate it a one. And that's sort of a hard, that's kind of a hard thing for me to think about because it's just like, go find something you love. There's thousands of games released every year. Like go find the one that's for you, you know, Yeah. instead of spending on the spending time on the one that you don't. So it's a little bit, as I said, it's a little bit frustrating, but I also think that for a game like Wormspan, sooner or later in a couple of months, there's going to be plenty of real ratings and then we'll kind of see how, see how everything shakes out. Um, but it is what it is. You mentioned that you've uh, maybe invested a little too much emotional energy <laughs> into the ratings and comments. Is there anything that stands out from those as particularly frustrating or draining? Um, I think the ones that are just saying it's a reskin are frustrating to me because obviously there are a lot of similarities as we've talked about, but it was a game that was designed, you know, from the ground up um, to be a different game. And so I think it's, it's tough when Stonemeyer has put up so much information sort of explaining the differences and talking through it. And you can see videos and you can read the rule book and stuff like that, that there's still kind of that, Oh, it's just a reskin floating around. And that's, that's tough because, you know, you spend a year of your life plus more working on this game and to sort of have it dismissed out of hand like that can be a little bit tough, but you know, the information is out there for people who want it. Um, And as I said, the game will be out in the world soon as well. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Connie. The question I wanted to leave with, is now that both of these games are out in the world, uh, what's next for Connie Vogelman? How much are we going to be seeing more of you? I hope we are because I hope I have, so. I've really enjoyed both of these games quite a bit, and I'm I'm very eager to see what's uh, coming next. So, are there any any hints you can drop, or is everything locked behind an NDA? So I will say I might start by taking a very long nap at some point. Um, probably won't happen, but I like to daydream. Um, I am uh, working on a couple of things. Unfortunately, I can't really talk about it much uh, right now, but I will say that I, I do very much hope that you will see more games um, from Connie Vogelman. Uh, and so I'm going to just kind of keep on keep on working on, on a few different projects. So so if, if folks who are listening want to find you, where is the best place that they can follow you, follow your work? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a huge social media person, but I do have, I'm um, at Connie V DC on on both Blue Sky and on Twitter slash X. So that would probably be the best place. Well, Connie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'm excited to see what you do next because I've enjoyed Apiary and my nine-year-old loves Wormspan, which by the biological behavioral uh, transitive property means I have to love Wormspan. And I do. I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. I don't mean to undersell that. So thank you for chatting with me. Yeah, of course. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.